The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. Now, I absolutely love stories. I mean, from an earliest age, I can remember loving stories. Loving this one particular storybook that was St. George and the Dragon that had these really graphic, kind of grotesque, weird, it just totally spoke to like six-year-old Trevor. Just loved that story. I remember loving Roald Dahl books, which is a very hard name to say in a public speaking setting. Roald Dahl books. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Matilda and those kind of books, if you're familiar. I love, I ate those stories up. I've always loved stories. And it's because humans are creatures that are just absolutely hooked on stories. Uh, When I was in uh, uh, my undergraduate and in seminary, when we had to take these public speaking preaching courses, one of the things they say is that you always want to begin a sermon with a story. You always want to tell a story to begin a sermon so that you can sort of uh, appeal to that, uh, that, that indelible love for stories that all people have deep within their hearts. So we just love stories. And I'm not listening to that advice because I couldn't think of a story to communicate those things with which to open this sermon, but we're going to roll with it, right? Now, what is it that makes stories so compelling to us? I think it's the, the characters that are really interesting. It's the scenarios they find themselves, find themselves in that are really interesting. But I think the thing that keeps us hooked with stories is when they take really unexpected turns. The only book I can recall actually reading in high school was the story, the, the, the one about the guy who wakes up one morning as a giant cockroach. Do you guys remember reading that one in high school? I think it's called Metamorphosis, maybe. I don't know. But as like an 11th grader, I, that was, I was hooked on the thought of a guy waking up as a giant cockroach. I mean, who doesn't love a good unexpected twist or turn in a story? A shocking reveal. You're following the characters, and then all of a sudden, boom, this happens, and the character is redirected in this way. Who doesn't love the shocking reveal that the guy was dead the whole movie? Oh, should have seen it. Should have seen it the whole time. Or it's the, the, the shocking reveal that it's the unassuming guy in the corner of the room who was the mastermind this whole time, the one who planned all of the murders. We love unexpected twists and turns in stories, and it just has a way of drawing us in. When the story is going this way, then all of a sudden the story goes that way, right? I mean, who doesn't love a good twist? I'll tell you who doesn't love a good twist. You don't love a good twist. When it's the story of your life, and your life is headed this way, and then all of a sudden, there's a twist, and the story of your life goes this way. When you have some idea about what life is going to look like for you, you have some idea about what the next few years were supposed to hold only for boom, some kind of turn that you did not choose. You find yourself with troubles or issues or dilemmas that you didn't want, you didn't ask for, and you didn't expect. I would guess that for many of us sitting in the room this morning, we are currently in the thick of a life we didn't expect, which took twists and turns and went directions you could have never planned for. This is not the life that you had in mind for yourself 10, 15, 20 years ago. Maybe you're here today and you're some kind of weird mix of gratitude, confusion, resentment, and regret about the shape that your life has taken. 
Maybe, maybe others of you are here and you are currently in the thick of one of these twists. One is unfolding even as we speak. It's unfolding in a way that you're just not sure you know what to do with. You aren't quite sure what to do with yourself. I think what's so helpful about this passage today, and so many of the passages throughout the book of Acts, is it invites us to see and trust and even chuckle at the Lord's providence in the life of his people. A divine redirect takes place in this passage that leads to, to an incredible kind of preservation by the hand of Jesus in the life of the Apostle Paul. And I think it's instructive for us in that it, it, it invites us to have a, a kind of trust in God's sovereign care even over the twists and the turns and the inevitable, unexpected things that take place in our lives. Now, just by way of recap, part one of the book of Acts, uh, book of Acts began in Jerusalem with the gospel being uh, taking root in the earliest Christians in Jerusalem, and then Jesus flings them out to the ends of the earth. Part two, the gospel advances to the region of Judea and Samaria. Part three, it goes to the ends of the earth with the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys. And then part four begins in chapter 20, where Paul tells us that he is constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. He says, the Spirit of Jesus is sending me to this city. And he learns as he's making his way to this city that the Spirit has spoken to others also. And that what awaits Paul in Jerusalem is a hornet's nest. It's not good. And his friends plead and they plead and they say, don't go. Surely imprisonment and death are what awaits you. Nevertheless, Paul, in obedience to Jesus, makes his way into the city. He arrives. He's unjustly accused. He's imprisoned. imprisoned rather, He's forced to explain himself about what Jesus is doing, sending him to this city. And our passage picks up today once again with Paul in a mess. Paul, it looks like, completely hemmed in, finding his life at risk, again, only for Jesus, to interject and to provide a divine redirect. Let's start at chapter 20, verse 30, the book of Acts. We'll call this section, Paul Examined. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why Paul, why Paul was being accused by the Jews... He unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. Then he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now to get us up to speed, we remember that just prior to this, Paul has been unjustly accused of living unlawfully. That as Paul makes his way to Jerusalem, word has gotten out about the things that Paul has been doing and preaching the gospel to the nations. And one rumor that's picked up a lot of speed is that Paul is being really willy-nilly and dismissive about the law of Moses and about the temple and about circumcision. He's denigrating the law of Moses. He's speaking against Moses. He's speaking against circumcision. This would have been a, a really uh, treacherous thing to do for someone who was, a, who, who was a, as Paul says, a Pharisee of Pharisees, for someone who's thoroughly Jewish, to be so flippant about the law, I mean, would, would rightly bring about condemnation from his brothers. 
But in reality, what Paul has demonstrated over and over again is his willingness to bend over backwards, to accommodate to the law, to show his faithfulness to the law, to show his faithfulness to Moses and the circumcision, all the while being unwilling to make Gentiles or force Gentiles to become Jewish, to become Christians. This is the source of the controversy and his suffering in Jerusalem, this misperception about Paul's teaching and about what he's doing. And so the, 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 the tribune, the local governing authority on behalf of Rome, the guy who is tasked with keeping peace over disputes that would occasionally arise about things like this, he's really confused about what's taking place. Because he looks at Paul, and he's seeing the things Paul's doing, and he's like, I don't know, the guy seems like, maybe he's got some wonky beliefs, but he doesn't seem to be this like brigand and revolutionary that he's being branded as. I just can't quite wrap my brain around why these masses are so up in arms about this guy, Paul. And so it says, verse 30, desiring to know the real reason. It's all right, there's, there's got to be something else going on because there, there's got to be a reason why folks are opposed to you with such intensity, Paul. He's confused about it. So he sits Paul down. He sits him before the Jewish council and he's like, all right, let's clear the air. What is the real reason you're in hot water? What is really going on, Paul? Verse one, and looking intently at the council, Paul says, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Paul says, concerning these charges about my flippancy with the law of Moses and about circumcision, he says, my conscience is clean. I'm innocent. I have lived lawfully. I've bent over backwards to show you guys my willingness to play ball with you all. I have not spoken against Moses. I have not spoken against the law like you guys have accused. My conscience is clean. And how do they respond? The council is livid. The high priest, Ananias, in verse 2, commands the guy who's standing next to Paul to strike Paul. Now, Ananias was the high priest. He was the, the one who would have led this, this tribunal, this, the, the, the authorities over religious and civil matters for the nation of Israel. Ananias is a name that might sound familiar. It's because we've seen it several times throughout the book of Acts. This is a different Ananias. This Ananias is one who was actually testified about by uh, Josephus, who is this ancient historian. He talked about how dirty and corrupt and nasty Ananias was. He was one of those guys who was born on third base kind of thing, and he, and he used his wealth and his privilege to exalt himself, so he probably bought this position. So bad news bears, in other words. Verse 3, after being struck for this, Paul rebukes Ananias and those guys that are with him. He says, God is going to strike you. You whitewashed wall, are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? You see what Paul's saying? He's like, you guys are all bent out of shape about me not adhering to the law. And then here you go, unlawfully striking me. Like, you've, got, you've got all this animosity towards me for these supposed reasons about me not adhering to the law. And yet, you yourselves aren't even behaving lawfully. He calls them a whitewashed wall which is uh, reminiscent of Jesus' words in Matthew 23 when he calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. Have you ever seen a, a house that was flipped and that maybe, maybe it had a, like a, a bunch of rot on the bottom floor or maybe there's just a lot of mold or nastiness, but somebody who's really cheap comes in and just covers it with a bunch of paint and, and primer, right? It's kind of the idea. It's this kind of whitewashing over nastiness. It's kind of a thinly veiled cover for this rot that's actually you know, at play on the inside. Paul, like Jesus, is recognizing the rottenness that's on the inside of these guys. It's this external sort of performance thing that is covering up this nastiness. 
He sees through the faux exterior. It's calling out the reality of the rottenness. Verse 4, those who are standing by, they're aghast that Paul would say such a thing to the high priest. Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul snaps back. What does he say? He says, and, and, I, and I love the saltiness here. He says, oh, my bad. I didn't realize I was talking to the high priest. In other words, the high priest wouldn't behave in this manner. He wouldn't behave unlawfully like this. He says, if he was the high priest, I would honor him according to the law. But this guy is clearly not the high priest based on his lack of adherence to the law. What's interesting is how though Paul is the one who is being examined, though Paul is the one who is on trial, who is really being exposed? Who are those who are actually being condemned in this encounter? Oh, how the turntables have turned. They are the ones that are being examined and exposed. Paul is accused of subverting the law, but who's really guilty of subverting the law here in this passage? Who is actually behaving contrary to God? It is Ananias and his ilk. And there are really, and man, I wish we could spend more time here, but there are really some profound things that are happening here in this encounter. We'll just hit this for, a sec- for, for just a second. Notice the connection between Paul's bravery and his clean conscience. The connection between Paul's bravery and his clean conscience. Paul bravely says, I'm innocent. And he takes blowback for saying that he's innocent. But he can withstand it because, well, he knows he's innocent. He is suffering unjustly. He's even a little bit salty because he knows he's in the right. And he knows they are the ones who are being outed. And I suspect, and I feel like this is the case in my own life, that one of the reasons I shrink back from doing the right thing that sometimes require bravery, sometimes I shrink back from hard situations because my conscience isn't clear. Why aren't we bold in evangelism at work or at school? Well, it's because my conscience condemns me for my bad work ethic there. Why aren't I bold in confronting a brother or sister when I need confrontation needs to take place? It's because my conscience isn't clear. It's because I know I have lived wrongly. Just something for us to consider, that there is some kind of connection between bravery and a clean conscience. It's also noteworthy to me how Paul's innocence kind of draws out resentment from these guys. Like, he's exposing them, right? Sometimes, again, I wish I could say more about this, but sometimes your faithfulness will make other people feel condemned and they'll respond by biting back. They'll respond with resentment. I wonder if you've actually ever seen this, maybe in your family or in your workplace. Your attempts to follow Jesus with a clean conscience, your attempts to want to be faithful to Jesus, makes others feel condemned and so they'll respond with vitriol or scheming against you or trying to undercut the progress that you're making in Christ-likeness. And the inverse is actually also true. I wonder how often is it do we harbor resentment because we see goodness in somebody and we feel condemned by what the Lord's doing in them and we resent and actually want to punish that. Again, just some things for us to consider. Verse 6, let's keep reading. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of the Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when, they, when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. 
Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down to take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Again, Paul last week acknowledges who he is and what it is that he's come to do and why he's on trial. And he says, the fact is, I'm not on trial for my relationship to the law at all. The reason that I'm on trial, he says loud and clear, the only reason that I'm here is because of the resurrection and the hope that I have in Jesus. And this is an absolute grenade that he lobs into that room. The Jesus who was crucified in this very city by some of you and your family members, he's come back to life, and I'm talking about this guy. And that's the reason that I'm being put on trial. And the place erupts. The Pharisees and Sadducees were two sects within Judaism with differing views on all manner of things, but in particular, the supernatural. Verse 8 actually outlines that the Sadducees are kind of squeamish about anything that's too supernatural. No resurrection, no angels, no spirits. But the Pharisees, well, they embrace all of them. They're political and theological enemies who find common cause against the Christians. And so Paul, seeing that it's the Sadducees and the Pharisees who are making up this crowd, mentions An absolute grenade that's intended to completely disrupt the room, to turn the Pharisees and the Sadducees against one another. And the result is verse 10. The place is chaos. It becomes violent. It says that the tribune is afraid Paul is going to be torn to pieces. I've seen some wild things and I've been in some wild mobs, but I've never been quite afraid that I was going to be torn to pieces. This must have been bad. The thing that I think about is in the the Looney Tunes You know when Bugs Bunny kind of gets the guys fighting and then the dust cloud starts and then Bugs Bunny kind of steps out to the side as the dust cloud continues? Just kind of imagine that's Paul's strategy here. He just wants to cause a kerfuffle and he does it. And then he's rescued the last minute. And it leaves us with a bit of a question. Jesus has told Paul that he's going to go to Jerusalem. It seems like there's kind of a note of finality to this. You're going to go to Jerusalem. It reminds that, uh, of the story of Jesus who is going to Jerusalem, where Jesus ultimately is condemned to death in Jerusalem. And so surely the way this story is going to end is Paul, with these grenades he keeps lobbing, Paul is going to get himself killed in the city until Paul's redirected in verse 11. The following night the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now, the Spirit has told Paul he's going to Jerusalem. It is confirmed by his interactions with his friends. This is where I'm to go. But Jesus had a bigger picture in mind for Paul. The path to Jerusalem was always going to lead Paul to Rome. And it's interesting that Paul is only given ever a partial picture along the way. Like in 21, he knows I have to go to Jerusalem, but he's not told about Rome. But here, Jesus unveils the next step in his plan. That message of the hope of the resurrection in Jesus that you have testified about in Jerusalem, well, guess what? I'm now sending you to the heart of the known world to preach Christ. Don't worry, Paul. I'm going to get you to Rome. Verse 12. See how Paul's preserved. And I just love this. This is master storytelling. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. One of our greenhouse guys talking about this passage this week pointed out that that word bound by an oath was they said anathema on us. In other words, if we don't kill Paul, 
Like, this is, a, this is not just a, a, a pinky promise sort of thing. They're inviting curses on themselves if they don't kill Paul. That's how committed they are to eradicating this guy. Verse 13. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. You see what they're saying? They make this plot to kill Paul. And they go full grassy knoll here, right? Like the, the plan is to ambush and assassinate this guy. They say, tell, they go to the chief priests and scribes and they say, as you're taking him from point A to point B, we're going to hide in waiting and kill Paul. Again, who is being exposed in this passage? Verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Paul is probably, uh, being that he was a Pharisee and being that he studied under Gamaliel, he probably has great connections in the city of Jerusalem. This is the first time we're told about Paul's nephew, but he has a nephew that's living in the city. Presumably, he has become a Christian through the ministry of Paul. He catches wind of the conspiracy, and he goes and tells the tribune, hey, don't, don't, don't do this. Don't buy into this request to bring Paul down this city path because they're trying to kill Paul. And then watch this. Then the tribune called two of the centurions and said, Get ready, look, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. Paul is attempting to, be, they're attempting to snuff him out. They, he is nearly torn apart by a mob. He has schemed against, his assassination is planned, and yet Jesus. Does anybody in the room know what judo is? Any martial arts experts? I am certainly no martial arts expert, unless you count watching Chuck Norris and Steven Seagal movies with my dad as a child. But what I know about, as a, a mature middle school, it was edited on TV, to be sure, not as a child. But the thing about judo is judo is designed to capitalize on the momentum of the enemy. In this passage, we have a kind of gospel judo move that takes place, where the enemy, in its full power, behind these crowds, attempting to snuff Paul out, is inadvertently undone. What happens is that Paul gets shipped to Rome with nearly 500 Roman soldiers devoted to preserving his life. And you know what? It's kind of hilarious. It's kind of brilliant. Because you read the story and you see, as one commentator said, that the Roman Empire is unwittingly participating in the mission of the church. 
that the Roman Empire, that, that Jesus is managing the Roman Empire for the sake of the gospel. That Jesus says, Paul, I'm going to get you to Rome so you can preach about me. And then Jesus bends the world around his desire for Paul to get him to Rome. And as we read this, it is just so fitting to me. Because the Lord has a pattern of doing exactly this thing for his people. I mean, think about the story of Jesus himself. Jesus came to the world. He came to, to preach and work against the enemy and to undo the power of the enemy and to undo sin. And the enemy and sin and the nations all conspired against Jesus. And at the end of the story, when the veil is ripped back, you know what it says? That was the plan all along. Nothing you could do could outwit or outsmart or outangle Anything that the Lord wants to do in his goodness and wisdom and sovereignty and power. The story of Jesus is a gospel judo move where the enemy's momentum is used against them to accomplish the purposes that the Lord Jesus had all along. And once again, we get a glimpse of that very thing in this passage. The enemy, you'd think he'd learn at this point that all of his power devoted to destroying God's people is only going to be used against him. And God recruits 470 soldiers to protect Paul and send him to the heart of the empire. Just awesome, isn't it? Just so good. Verses 25 through 35, we have the Tribune writing a letter that sort of summarizes the events of the last few days. He casts himself in a great light. It's pretty, it's pretty amusing. He wrote a letter to this effect. Verse 26, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Anapatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. When he had learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrived. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. If we could summarize this passage, we would say that Jesus and his bigness and brilliance is managing the Roman Empire like chess pieces to take the message of the resurrection by the, by the apostle Paul to the heart of the world. And what encouragement this gives us is that regardless of whatever twist or turn or redirect we are currently in the midst of, we know that Jesus has a history of introducing and using these kinds of twists for his good purposes. And so we can read verse 11, and we can read it as a, as a, as a word to us as Jesus' people. Take courage. I have purposes for you in this. Whatever the this is for you, Jesus says, take courage. I have purposes for you in this. Passages like this invite us to see and savor and even find ourselves a little amused at God's good purposes for his people. The Roman Empire, I just love that. The Roman Empire unwittingly participating in the mission of the church. It's unreal. And this is not a... This is not Jesus in a, oh man, I didn't see this coming, I got a course correct and, and plan B, and he's just really savvy at adjusting on the fly kind of thing. This is master storytelling. 
This is a, a good God with infinite brilliance and power moving the universe around the good of his people. And Christian, this morning, let me just hit you with something incredible. You ready for this? Christian, we're good. We're good. Jesus has purposes for you in that. You hear me say that and you think, that's, that's great, but you don't, you don't know what it is I'm going through. You don't know what, it, what is the that for me. You don't know what that is. Or you hear me say that and you say, I, I don't understand how God could do anything with this because this is beyond redemption. Or you look at me and you say, Trevor, you are too young and you don't have enough life under your belt to say something as audacious as that. I'd say, let's hear from the Apostle Paul himself about this. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And what Paul is telling us from firsthand experience is that Jesus has purposes for you in this thing. And, and if you've been saved by Jesus, if you're being sanctified by Jesus, you are locked in with Jesus for good, and he will care for you forever. Your life will take unexpected turns, unexpected to you, not Jesus. You will get redirected by Jesus's good wisdom for you. And, and our call, our invitation, we'll even say, the way that we're to respond to this is, is to look up with surrendered hands and say, I don't understand, but I trust. Christian, this is your invitation this morning. What do we know Jesus is inviting us to do from this passage? Trust. Why does Jesus do this? I mean, why does Jesus only give a partial reveal to Paul? Like Paul, we aren't always privy to the full details of what it is Jesus is up to. Paul did not know that Rome was his ultimate destination until Jesus told him that Rome was his ultimate destination. Jesus did not disclose, even to the Apostle Paul, the whole picture. Why does Jesus do that? Why does Jesus choose to go about these circuitous kind of ways to get his purposes done? Why send Paul to Jerusalem to get mobbed and arrested and then carried to Rome in this way? Why is it that Jesus chooses to allow these intensely painful things we experience to happen? Why does he send our lives in twisty directions? Why do those troubles and issues and dilemmas we didn't want, didn't ask for, and didn't expect take place? Honestly, I have no answer, but what I know for certain is this, is that Jesus wants you to trust him, to trust him. Just like you were told when you were a child. Remember mom and dad saying, listen, we just have a different vantage point than you. We just have more knowledge of the whole. This thing you don't like is what's right. You just have to trust our judgment on that. The Lord Jesus, so, so it is with him. The one who manages the Roman Empire for the sake of the gospel, he invites us to take courage and to trust in what he's given us. So the question is, I mean, is, is this Jesus who invites us to trust worthy of that trust? The thing that I'd invite you to do is to take a look at the Jesus of the Bible, to think about the story and the shape of the gospel, and you tell me, is the one who did not 
and consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Is he worthy of our confidence and our trust that he has good purposes for us and whatever it is that we're experiencing? I think he does. Listen, this is one of the most genuinely encouraging things that I've ever read. This came from John Piper almost 10 years ago. He writes, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. There are three granite foundation stones under this confidence for this year. God's love, God's sovereignty, and God's wisdom. Love. In the death of Christ on our behalf, God has totally removed his wrath from us. Now there is not only no condemnation, but now God is only merciful. Even his discipline is all mercy. Sovereignty. There's no power in the universe that can stop him from from fulfilling his totally good plans for you. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Wisdom. God's infinite wisdom always sees a way to bring the greatest good out of the most painful and complex situations. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Therefore, no matter what you face this year, God will be doing 10,000 things in your life that you cannot see. Trust him, love him, and they will all be good for you. I just wonder if we can embrace that today. What if this afternoon you went home and you took that passage from Romans 8 and you just put your name in there just to make this really concrete for you? We know that for Trevor, all things work together for good. For Trevor, who is called according to God's purpose, it is Trevor God foreknew and predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And Trevor God predestined and called. And Trevor he called and also justified. And Trevor he justified, he also glorified. That has got some teeth. And I just wonder if we could cast ourselves in complete trust on Jesus in response to who he has shown himself to be time and time and time again in the life of his people. And you were right. I have no idea the weight of the pain of the thing that you're experiencing. I have no category for it. But as one preacher said a long time ago, a Jesus who never wept could never wipe away our tears. Jesus does. And Jesus sees us and he loves us and he knows you, friend. I invite you to trust him this morning. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, the invitation for you is also one of trust. What the scriptures tell us is that apart from Jesus' forgiveness, we stand condemned before a holy God. And you know what? I'm convinced that we know it. Because we all know that there's a standard out there that I fall short of. That's why we can't fall asleep at night, because we think of how short we are of that standard. And here's the amazing, astounding news of the gospel, is that Jesus died for that thing. Jesus died for your sin so that you could be forgiven, so that you could receive a kind of sweet sigh of relief from the mercy of God who pardons us on the basis of Jesus' death for us. And the invitation for you this morning is trust It's to believe that Jesus' blood on the cross shed for you is potent enough to forgive everything that you've done. That he fills us with the Spirit and invites us into life with him and his people forever. The invitation for you also is to trust. The next few minutes we're going to pray. And during this time in our service, we always just pause. Just pause to think about some of the things that have been said. Pause to think about God's word. 
And pause to think and respond to how the Spirit is moving in our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the consistent witness of the scriptures that show that you are strong, loving, and wise. And we pray this morning that you would give us confidence in what your scripture says about you. Would you help us to offer ourselves up to you in complete trust in whatever it is that you have given to us. And Lord Jesus, though it it's hard, and though it, it even it, it, feels, it feels challenging, we pray that you would allow us to surrender ourselves to you and trust that, that you have good plan for us in all things as your people. And also pray that you would give us clarity in how to respond, and, and I pray also for our friends who are here this morning who have not yet believed that your spirit would move in their hearts, that they would repent and believe the gospel. We love you, and we pray all of this in your name.